love this music. Isn't it too dreamy? listening to Lost in Twin Peaks, a podcast for both first-time and veteran viewers of Twin Peaks, the mystery series that ran for two seasons in the early 90s on ABC, followed by a feature film and, 25 years later, a limited series on Showtime. Twin Peaks is full of rich characters and situations, many of which will surprise or even shock us. This podcast will avoid all spoilers. If you're a new listener who has just discovered this episode and wants to know more about the podcast, check out episode zero, show format. This is the third episode of the first season and is referred to as such on Netflix, but I'll probably tend to refer to it as episode two, following the DVD and Blu-ray designations. During its German broadcast, this episode was dubbed Zen or The Skilled to Catch a Killer. And although unofficial, this episode title is used on many streaming services and associated media. On screen, Albert arrives in Twin Peaks, Leland dances with Lara's picture, Audrey dances alone, the Horn brothers pay a visit to One-Eyed Jacks, and Cooper throws rocks at bottles to identify the mysterious Jay, and later, dreams of a red room. On this uh, particular podcast episode, we're not only going to follow the usual format, analyzing the plot of the TV episode, but also begin, after some preliminaries, with an extended commentary on the context of that infamous dream sequence, along with some other cool bits of context and background. But first, for $5 a month patrons, I'm releasing this podcast on April 19th. That's the 29th anniversary of the episode's groundbreaking premiere in 1990. So if you're listening to this right away, uh, keep that in mind. It's kind of a cool uh, date to mark. And if you're listening to this episode on October 3rd, the day that this podcast is debuting for $1 a month patrons six months later, this is the fifth anniversary of David Lynch and Mark Frost simultaneously tweeting that Gum You Like is going to come back in style in 2014. A cryptic clue that they were about to announce a new season, but also, of course, a reference to one of the most famous lines of this very episode which is itself perhaps a cryptic clue. And if digging into such uh, cryptic connections between uh, different associations is your thing, make sure to also check out my Twin Peaks Cinema podcast this week. That's a monthly podcast I just launched on its own feed, which is covering the film Laura, the 1944 auto premature noir, and uh, drawing a connection to Twin Peaks starting with, but just starting with, the names that uh, Twin Peaks very consciously took from that film, Laura and uh, some other names that we'll hear later. Okay, let's move into the three questions. What is Twin Peaks? Who is Agent Cooper? Who is Laura Palmer? First up, what is Twin Peaks? We're dipping into two dramatic extensions of the world on screen, one much more so than the other, although both are unprecedented. In both cases, they involve nighttime visitations to mysterious red curtain locales, and in both cases, significantly, these locations are beyond the strict geographical boundaries of Twin Peaks. One-Eyed Jacks allows us to dip directly into the hidden illicit aspect of Twin Peaks, 
that has so far only been hinted at with the cocaine and flesh world in Laura's safety deposit box, or Mike and Bobby's drug talk, or the Jacques stakeout. Or it's occasionally been embodied in character encounters, but inside, you know, locations that aren't transgressive in themselves. So the previous episode with Catherine and Ben plotting corporate sabotage in a motel, and uh, later in this episode with Bobby and Mike and Leo meeting in the woods. So those are like our peaks of sort of the underworld of Twin Peaks, but they're not exactly out in the open, but they're in places that are like innocuous in themselves. But this location, One-Eyed Jack's, it implies not only prostitution, but international trafficking that implicates Ben and possibly Renette. So we're really seeing the criminal shadow side firsthand here. And it's being related to the town's low, not actually not being related in this case to the town's lowest social and class elements, but to its highest social and class elements. Same as with the Ben and Catherine plotting in the previous episode. So the show is going out of its way to show us that the elites are very complicit in whatever this dark side of Twin Peaks is. Now, given the Red Room situation in Cooper's head, it's harder to say yet how that place relates to the town that apparently triggered this dream for Cooper. But, of course, there are elements there. The long-haired man that Sarah saw, does Cooper know that? The one-armed man that Hawk saw, and, of course, Laura, that tied directly back into the community that the detective has entered. Indeed, if the police have been contacted about Sarah's visions, we could read this as him trying to digest the strangest elements of the town that he's encountered so far in this abstract space. Elsewhere in the episode, we expand on the vision of the town we got in about half of the previous episode, of everyday life going on with its own sense of mystery, excitement, and emotional involvement, less organized this time by the investigation and the fallout from Laura's death. We can see that there's a lot more to this community than just her murder, even if it remains a linchpin. Who is Agent Cooper? This feels like Pete Cooper so far. As in the previous episode, we get much more emphasis on the detective's cheerful, goofy persona than his more hard-headed authority figure mode. In fact, even less of the latter than before, maybe only as he gets frustrated, even as he mostly remains calm with Lucy's questions. There's just one brief moment, almost comical in its extreme brevity, in which we see him doing conventional police work with the bloody towel. But even in his silliest gestures, lecturing the police about Tibet, throwing bottles at rocks, or sitting in bed with his hair slicked up to one side, telling Harry that he can wait till morning to find out the big secret before hanging up and snapping his fingers, Cooper is serious about what he's doing. And this inclines us to take it at least somewhat seriously, too. The dream adds a whole new dimension to his detection, and probably a necessary one to keep him at the center of the narrative, as a figure whom we not only identify with as a newcomer to the town, but who we respect and keep in awe of for his investigative prowess. Lately, we've been spending a lot of time with townspeople conducting business that Cooper isn't aware of, which might distance us from him and even make us feel slightly superior, but the dream gives him something that only he can grapple with, and re-establishes him as a conduit of our broader understanding of this mystery. My three favorite Cooper moments are probably him whistling on the flute and grinning as he makes the funny gesture, making a funny noise as he pinches Harry's nose, and smiling with a huge thumbs up to Harry after he tells off Albert. Who is Laura Palmer? As noted, this is in many ways the least Laura-centric episode so far. Even plots that were initiated through her death don't bring her up that much now, and we get few clues about her mystery. Here again is an area where the dream provides necessary compensation. The Red Room offers our most sustained exposure to Laura yet. She's apparently alive, speaking, albeit backwards, and interacting with Cooper. She has an extremely dynamic presence, especially in the final moments with Cooper, creating one of the most iconic images of the show, and a really potent one, because it envisions the murder victim whispering, with a smile, her secrets to the murder investigator. 
a surprisingly and subversively empowering vision of a crime story. Ambiguously, this is all ostensibly in Cooper's own head, so this Laura could just be a projection amalgamation of his own intuitions and experiences thus far, although we've seen enough of the show to wonder if there's more going on psychically than just that. Adding to the ambiguity, of course, it's never clearly stated if or how this dream woman is Laura Palmer. Aren't you Laura Palmer? Cooper asks of the woman whom the man from another place describes as a cousin who looks almost exactly like Laura Palmer, which implies but doesn't actually clarify that she isn't Laura Palmer. She responds, I feel like I know her, which again implies a separation without being 100%. Has death distanced her? Is she speaking in a kind of riddle? And then, of course, she continues with an apparent non sequitur, Sometimes my arms bend back. If Laura recedes as a central social force in Twin Peaks, the power of her mysterious presence only grows more enveloping with its diffusion. The feel of this episode makes an interesting comparison to both the pilot and the previous episode. In the latter case, obviously having Lynch behind the camera shifts the style radically back toward a more cinematic aesthetic, well, Dwayne Dunham had some interesting shots. A lot of his coverage in episode one was fairly straightforward, whereas Lynch goes for many high angles and wide shots. That said, certain scenes still have a lot of conventional cutting, like the Tibetan method scene, which even has almost jarring flashes of each character on screen as like spurs for exposition. Compared to the pilot, the atmosphere is very different here. Lynch is shooting, yes, but in California. I also think the timing is really significant. Between March when he wrapped the pilot and December when he filmed this, he'd been down south shooting Wild at Heart, as we already mentioned. And that film has a very unique place in the Lynch canon. In May 1990, it would win the Palme d'Or at Cannes, not long after this episode aired, and it was also arguably the first of a ton of rebellious road movies like My Private Idaho, uh, Natural Born Killers, uh, what's the one that Quentin Tarantino, well, he wrote Natural Born Killers, but True Romance, Thelma and Louise. There's just a whole run of these movies in the early 90s. And of course, they call back to something like Bonnie and Clyde 20 years earlier, and also the many Golden Age Hollywood films like You Only Live Once or uh, what's the one that Nicholas Ray directed, They Live by Night, that plays star-crossed lovers on the lamb. But there's an openness and a freshness to where this genre and Wild at Heart in particular went in the 90s that was a new break for Lynch's work, building on something that started with the sunny small town scenes of Blue Velvet, but increasing the excitement and the rock and roll energy on top of that film's chipper attitude. And you can think of this in contrast to Eraserhead, Elephant Man and Dune, which are very like gothic, ornate kind of works. They feel more like a David Cronenberg, Ridley Scott kind of model of that generation of filmmakers. Whereas Blue Velvet starts to kind of mix that with a sunnier, more cheerful vibe and Wild at Heart takes that and boosts up the energy to a whole different level. In some ways, this was the youngest, hippest, and coolest that Lynch would ever be, aside from maybe Lost Highway, which has an edgier darkness to it than Wild at Heart. Now, what does this have to do with Twin Peaks? Well, this episode is very snappy and brisk and wry and self-knowing. It's playful in a way that the pilot isn't, and it feels very of a piece with Wild at Heart to me. It helps that David Patrick Kelly, the actor who plays Jerry, comes straight from that film, both literally in that he played a small but memorable role in Wild at Heart, which inspired Lynch to cast him in his TV series, but also in a more general sense. His zany, unhinged energy is really in the spirit of that movie. One-Eyed Jacks also feels super wild at heart, since that movie indulges in a decadent criminal milieu with colorfully dressed prostitutes as a major feature. 
There's also a New Orleans vibe to One-Eyed Jacks, which fits not just with some of Wild at Heart's location shooting, but also Mark Frost's interest in that area. Within a year, he would shoot his debut feature, Storyville, in New Orleans. And before that, in the fall of 1990, he and Lynch would collaborate on a New Orleans, I think a Mardi Gras-focused episode for their short-lived documentary series, American Chronicles, uh, which ran on Fox in later in 1990. And the sense of episode two tapping into something that extends beyond this personal aspect, because as already noted with the road movie trend, there was just kind of a general zeitgeist at this time. The Tibetan method with its mystic vibe, uh, the late 80s, early 90s were one of many periods in U.S. history when Americans were getting, for lack of a better phrase, new agey. And I suppose even uh, the, the Tibet method's fusion of like a quintessentially liberal humanitarianism with a spiritually minded anti-communist ideology really suits this moment when both the Berlin Wall and apartheid were falling. And of course, a year earlier, the Chinese government had attacked students protesting in Tiananmen Square. So that was all kind of part of this spirit of the time. Overall, in its shooting style, its pacing, its situations and dialogue, and just its full-on mood, this is a new turn for Twin Peaks, building on what came before in unexpected ways. The spirit is a huge development, not just for Lynch, but for Twin Peaks. There's a sense of fun, glee, and wonder in the voices of 1990 viewers when they talk about this show, not only at this time, but looking back on it now. And I think this comes much more from this episode than from the pilot. Season one in general, meaning the first seven episodes following the pilot, all partake in that energy, but this is the one where Lynch's personal vision meets that freewheeling zeitgeist, and for that reason, it's just so quintessential. This is the second episode of the series to be directed by David Lynch uh, following the pilot. So this is his first chance to return to the series whose vision he established, but the context is rather different, which we'll discuss in a moment. At this moment, Lynch has directed roughly three of the first four hours of the show, so we, and the audiences and critics of the time, haven't seen much of Peaks without him at the helm. That sort of pace seems unsustainable for an early 90s network series, but for the moment, it's as close to auteur-driven television as one could imagine. As far as the writers go, this is the third episode in a row written by David Lynch and Mark Frost, the co-creators. Beyond the pilot, they are really committed to launching the series in a tight-knit, focused manner. As with the previous teleplay, I have my personal suspicions, mostly from inference rather than from the documentary record, that Frost did more of the actual writing here, as opposed to a more even-handed collaboration that we see on the pilot. Grounds for the suspicion are mainly that Lynch was gearing up to direct his film Wild at Heart while this was being written, and that the episodic entries pick up various threads in an ongoing narrative, much more in Frost's uh, style. You know, this is his stock and trade. He wrote network television for several seasons of H Hill Street Blues, and given his history as a TV writer, and also that some of the most overtly Lynchian moments in this episode were actually created not in the script. Uh, the Red Room and Audrey's Dance, uh, they were one was improvised on the set, uh, replacing a scene when Audrey and Donna were supposed to meet outside of a church. That was what was written. And the other one, the Cooper's Dream sequence, that was written, directed, and edited long before the rest of the episode was even conceived in a wildly different context. So let's talk about that context right now. There are two unique contexts to keep in mind as the background for this episode. One takes place in the spring of 1989, before ABC had greenlit series, indeed before the pilot itself was even completed. In fact, we can start even earlier than that when Lynch was up in Washington shooting the pilot. 
The contract with Lynch Frost Productions demanded an alternate ending for the pilot, which came to be known as the European version because some of the project's financiers outside of ABC, you know, they had to go around and get extra funding for the to, to make this pilot uh, with the budget they wanted to. They stipulated that they wanted the ability to distribute the pilot as a self-enclosed movie in the European market as a way to recoup, recoup their funding uh, if the network turned them down for a full series and also declined to air the episode as a, you know, a, a TV movie, or if they did, they'd have some kind of ending for it. So neither Lynch or Frost seemed to take this clause very seriously, but at some point they realized that they had to provide something. So they naturally assumed they would have to reveal the killer to do so. That's how the whole plot of the pilot was set up. If they're going to have an alternate ending, it's going to answer that question, right? So during free moments in the busy shooting schedule, they wrote and Lynch directed material that would do that. As it turns out, the uh, alternate ending was released, even though the series became, you know, a, an actual TV series. Uh, that version was made available in, in some markets in Europe. So critics and journalists in the spring of 1990, if they wanted to, could get their hands on that alternate ending. So Lynch and Frost made clear, and ABC made clear that this is not at all a canonical ending to anything. So the stuff that happens in this alternate ending was just meant to be a standalone that wasn't supposed to have any relevance to anything. So we can discuss it here without spoiling the series itself, especially since most of the footage is either makes it into this episode or when Cooper describes his dream later, he describes stuff we didn't see that's in the alternate ending. So it's clear that this is all, it becomes canonical as Cooper's dream, but not as something that's supposed to happen that we can't reveal yet. So in this alternate ending, we see Sarah Palmer leaping up from the couch just like she does at the end of the pilot, but instead of a hand digging into the dirt to retrieve a necklace, we cut to dark grainy footage of the long-haired man, who, she's, who we now know is called Bob, crouching behind the bed in Laura's bedroom. Sarah screams out and calls for Leland, and then we witness Lucy and Andy sitting in what appears to be some sort of shared home. She's in a big pink puffy dress, paddling a ball on a string, and he is in a bathrobe playing the trumpet. Lucy picks up the phone when it rings and is greeted by an eager Leland Palmer who informs her that his wife just remembered that she saw a man hiding behind Laura's bed that, mer that earlier that morning. Lucy promises to tell Harry and Cooper and says that Hawk can come over to take a description and draw a police sketch of this suspect. Meanwhile, Cooper is woken up by a phone call from a payphone in the hospital where the one-armed man, whom we now know to be called Mike, wants to meet him. Harry and Cooper meet Mike in the room where Laura's body was examined, and he tells them about his ex-partner in crime, and confirms when they show him the police sketch that it's the long-haired man. They were both murderers until Mike had some kind of religious experience, changing his ways and cutting off his arm, which had a, quote, tattoo from the devilish one. He recites his fire walk with me poem, and the footage from this scene is incorporated into Cooper's dream on this episode, with the impression that the character is directly addressing the dreamer, whereas as originally shot, he's like looking at uh, Cooper, who's sort of supposed to be standing behind the camera, Cooper and Harry in, in that hospital room. So that's how that footage came about that we see in the dream sequence of the one-armed man speaking in this cryptic, mysterious way and speaking the fire walk with me poem. It was originally intended as that. He tells them that they'll find Bob in the basement below the hospital, and Harry and Cooper approach the killer's lair, uh, this room down in the base, it's like a furnace room, basically, where Bob is standing in a circle of candles. He sings songs, a strange poem about bunnies and catching someone with his death bag, and then he confesses to killing Laura and he promises to kill again. 
And these are the passages that are also clipped into Cooper's dream to similar effect as a mic footage where it looks like Bob is just directly addressing the audience slash um, you know, Cooper as the dreamer. Then in the alternate ending, Mike storms in and shoots his ex-partner dead. Bob, you know, falls to the ground dead. And then Mike himself dies. He has some weird sort of heart attack or stroke, almost as if he's connected somehow to Bob. And by killing him, he killed himself. And he enigmatically asks, I think he says, got a nickel? I have no idea why. And he falls to the ground and expires. And Harry and Cooper stare at the candles and Cooper says, make a wish before the candles are extinguished by some kind of breeze. And thus ends the first part of the alternate ending, which is all the stuff that Lynch and Lynch shot while they were up in Seattle in the midst of the other production. And I guess that was just intended to be the ending in and of itself. Only a few seconds of that, though, make it into the dream sequence. But the script for this episode, episode two, suggests that originally they hoped to include all of it. So I think, and there's also a story of Lynch going to the network with his editor for this episode and begging them to give him another two-hour time slot so that they could have a two-hour episode. And I imagine, because there's not that much extra stuff in the script from like the daytime stuff, I imagine that was to include the entire alternate ending as a dream sequence. And I also suspect, I've never seen confirmation of this, but it would make sense. I suspect that we were in the, in the way it was originally scripted, we were going to see Cooper get into his bed. Uh, there was a scene, I think, deleted where he's like delivering a message to Diane or something, and then he turns out his light and he sits back in bed. And then I think we would cut to Sarah lying on her couch and jumping up and saying she saw the man behind the bed and everything like that. And that therefore it would look like it was flowing and what we were seeing was actually part of the story. And only at the very end of the episode would Cooper wake up and would realize that the past half hour or so had been a dream. And it would work perfectly because inside that dream, Cooper is in the great Northern bed in his room, woken up by a phone call. So it would seem like it was all flowing dramatically. But I don't know if that was true, but it would make total sense. It would be kind of brilliant. Like imagine if this scene had unfolded in 1990 with the audience thinking that this was all real not even not being cued that it's a dream by Cooper kind of rolling around in bed as Mike and Bob are speaking to him and so forth uh, it's pretty damn effective as is and maybe that would have been too much because also that first part of the dream is not that I don't I don't think it's as strong as the Red Room stuff but uh, it would have been kind of cool to play with audiences that way, for sure. Now, this sequence, everything up to the candles blowing out, uh, this sequence of sketchy, often absurd scenes was thrown together last minute by Lynch, with Frost likely shaping the material based on Lynch's ideas, uh, based mostly on what appears to be a series of coincidences and whimsical impulses. Bob was played by Frank Silva, a set dresser who had worked with Lynch for several years. Uh, exiting the Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis' employ with the director when that company went belly up in, uh, I believe, 86 or 87, just as the Lynch-Frost comedy One Saliva Bubble was supposed to be going into production. Stories vary slightly about Bob's origin, but as Lynch tells it, Silva, who of course was working for him on Twin Peaks as a set dresser, was setting up Laura's room for a shot, and as he moved the furniture toward a corner, another crew member warned him not to trap himself in there. So Lynch heard the, I think it was the AD shouting out, the assistant director shouting out, Frank, don't trap yourself in there. And a vivid, he, an image vividly flashed into Lynch's mind of Silva crouched in the corner. And he raced into the room and asked the set dresser to stop his work for a moment, even asked if he was an actor. Do you have a SAG card? Great, great. 
and he picked up a shot panning the room, sweeping across the room with the camera and capturing the unusual looking man peering over the bedpost like a vision of the boogeyman. The image of Bob in the previous episode, by the way, the, which makes Sarah scream while she's hugging Donna, that's not this original shot. It's a retake much closer up uh, with brighter lighting, probably made by that uh, episode one's director, Dwayne Dunham. But it's obviously based on the shot that Lynch took for the alternate end, well, what ended up in the alternate ending and just took off the cuff in the pilot before he knew what he was going to use it for. Now, that same evening that he shot that, they were shooting Sarah's mother leaping up from the couch and reacting to the vision of the necklace. And when they took this shot, the camera operator warned Lynch that someone's face had accidentally been caught in the mirror behind the actress Grace Zabriskie while she was performing. And Lynch realized with shock and amazement when he, I think he told everyone, freeze where you are, let me see who it was. And he looked in the lens and it was Frank Silva who had been, whose reflection had been caught in the mirror. So he decided he must really be onto something with that vision earlier in the day. And he left this accident in place. In fact, you can still see Frank Silva's face in the mirror in the finished pilot. I mentioned that in previous episodes. Then that's why that's there. It was actually an accident that Lynch left in because he thought he could use it. So sometime around this revelation, he decided to take Silva and Al Strobel, the actor who plays the one-armed man, out to an abandoned school on an island somewhere, I guess off of Seattle, where they would shoot the basement scene with a small crew and a few essential actors. The idea of the one-armed man cutting off uh, his arm to purify himself came to Lynch as he watched Strobel work. Uh, Al Strobel was hired simply as an extra. It was apparently a tongue-in-cheek in-joke meant to reference the villainous one-armed man in the old TV mystery, The Fugitive. So Lynch mentioned this idea of the one-armed man cutting off his arm to purify himself uh, over breakfast to the editor, Dwayne Dunham, who thought that this, this idea was crazy. But later on, when he was actually editing the pilot, he re received these reels in the middle of the night with this bizarre spooky footage of Bob, you know, Frank Silva and the one-armed man talking about cutting off his arm. And he realized, oh, wow, this is what Lynch was thinking. Now, it was only later, while editing the full pilot in Los Angeles, that the final, most crucial epiphany arrived for Lynch. During a smoke break in a parking lot, he rested his hands on a red car, and according to his recollection, the entire Red Room sequence, the visuals, the strange lines, the whole mood and vibe, flashed into his mind like an electrical spark. Though the sequence feels entirely Lynchian, both Lynch and Frost seem to suggest that Frost contributed somewhat to fleshing it out, I don't know, writing the dialogue or whatever, or if they just talked about it and Lynch wrote it, I'm not sure. But Lynch had the Red Room set built exactly to his specifications, and he put Kyle McLaughlin in old age makeup, and he flew in Charlie from Seattle to play Laura, or, or the little man's you know cousin who looks exactly like her. So, of course, she was a Seattle actress. They'd hired her just for a day or two's work, uh, as the corpse on the beach and then in the morgue and then they shot the stuff with the picnic with her and it was like, you know, she was thrown in the back half of the credits. Like, we'll probably never see her again. But uh, he he had this idea of Laura being in this red room speaking to Cooper backwards and, uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. And so, you know, Lee was brought back into the fold and then, of course, she was brought on to the, to the series in some sort of regular capacity. We've seen her name now before both the credits of both episodes. Last episode, it was because they shot some flashback footage, and this episode's the dream sequence, so they keep finding ways to bring her back somehow. And Lynch also hired his old pal Michael J. Anderson, the little man who in the red suit, who was supposed to star in Lynch's long, unmade personal project, Ronnie Rocket. All of the dialogue for the scene was memorized backwards, 
spelled out phonetically so that the actors could memorize it that way. And this is ironically a process that Anderson helped to supervise because entirely independent from Lynch wanting to shoot this way, Anderson as a kid had mastered this method of speaking. It was just something that interested them and they did. And then Lynch comes forward and says, hey, I'd like you to do this. He's like, you're kidding. This is what I do anyways. So he knew how to do this. And that's why it comes off pretty smoothly. So here's what's coming off. They're reading the lines backwards. And after recording the action and the dialogue backwards, except for Kyle McLaughlin's, which was just filmed straightforwardly, the footage was run in reverse for the final cut. So the dialogue appears to be spoken in normal order, but with a strange effect to the sound. So they shot it backwards and then run it forwards for the actual episode. And of course, you need the subtitles to fully understand it. So Lynch took this sequence once it was done, and he added it to the rest of the alternate ending. And he, you know, to the, uh, to the, all of the stuff in the hospital with Bob and Mike, etc. And, uh, he, he created a bridge between these two sequences with the title 25 years later. So we see the candles blow out and then we fade up on the red room. There's actually, we're looking at the table. There's a reflection of Cooper's face in the table and the little lamp next to it. And it says 25 years later on the screen. And then we pan up and we see Cooper in the old age makeup. No other explanation or context was given. It was just a bizarre trippy sequence that was so memorable. He and Frost decided that they wanted to incorporate it into the series. And using it as a dream sequence seemed the most obvious solution, given the nature of everything else on screen. So that's how the dream sequence came into being. And that's the first and most important, unique context to this episode. But there is another. The rest of this episode was unusual as well, because it's the only chapter of Twin Peaks shot out of order. Lynch knew that he wanted to direct this particular episode once it was written, but because it was so early in the season's production, there was going to be a practical problem with this. During the production of the show, he was hard at work halfway across the country, shooting wild at heart. So instead, the cast and crew waited on this episode. They shot the later one, most of the later ones first, uh, and they waited until Lynch was available. Only the season finale was shot after this episode. As a result, for example, Miguel Ferrer performed his big entry as Albert Rosenfield in this episode long after he had shot later scenes with that character. So this wasn't actually him getting a handle on the character. He had already performed a bunch of scenes as, as Albert. By the time all of the actors were able to shoot these scenes, they had much more under their belt than just two episodes. And there was also a certain tempo and atmosphere that had been established by this point. If Lynch was stepping back into the world he'd set up nearly a year earlier, he was also rejoining a collaborative process that took on a new flavor as a kind of roll your sleeves up, you know, make it work TV production and the richly furnished warehouse sound stages of Van Nuys. In a way, the ensemble was now closer to a working theater company than a one-off uh, film production group. The fact that Lynch was coming straight off of Wild at Heart and was prepping that film while writing the script also seems relevant to the broke, playful, high-energy mood of this episode, distinguishing it from the gray, more somber, and moody spirit of the pilot. That's it for this episode. Tomorrow we continue with the dream by talking about the different clues that are in it, uh, just laying out all the statements and uh, starting with that without quite knowing what to make of them yet, but adding them to other clues to address the question of who killed Laura Palmer, the ongoing open question and where we're at, gathering all those clues from also the bottle sequence and everything else in this episode, and uh, kind of checking in on that investigation and seeing what we've uh, learned up to this point. 
if you enjoy these podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe, uh, particularly on Apple Podcasts, where the promotion is most helpful. You can also become a patron for $5 a month on patreon.com slash lost in the movies, where you will get this entire catalog of Lost in Twin Peaks, uh, including season three, including for uh, if you join at $5 a month right away, you'll have access to the final episode and fire walk with me and uh, all the other pieces of the puzzle. So uh, definitely join up with that if you like. And there's much more than just getting advanced uh, episodes of this. You're also getting a lot of exclusive material like Twin Peaks Conversations for $5 a month tier. For the dollar a month tier, you get my uh, monthly Twin Peaks cinema that I'm just now starting to take public. So some of that you won't see for years on a public podcast, if at all. And uh, all of this other material, hours upon hours of bonus material there. So uh, check it out. Mm-hmm.